Hello and welcome to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. This episode features a conversation with Nancy Youssef, National Security Correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. She discussed relations between the US and a number of countries, including North Korea and Iran, as well as press access and President Trump's approach to foreign policy. The conversation was moderated by Andy Rosenthal, visiting Murrow lecturer of the practice of press and public policy at Harvard Kennedy School and former editorial page editor for The New York Times. Andy Rosenthal. I'm uh, filling Nico's sneakers today. I am uh, currently here as the, uh, what is my, Edward Murrow visiting lecturer, um, and I'm teaching a class on race in the media. And uh, it's pretty exciting, um, and also part of the Shorenstein Center. Uh, Nancy is the national security correspondent with the Wall Street Journal uh, in Washington. She was previously doing that job for BuzzFeed News, The Daily Beast, and McClatchy Newspapers. And her reporting is focused largely on the U.S. military and the Arab world. Is that fair? That is fair. A Washington, D.C. native and a graduate of the University of Virginia in Georgetown. University. What did you get from Georgetown? Well, I got a security studies degree at Georgetown. Wow. That's pretty exciting. Seemed like the thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to talk about national security, shockingly enough. And um, I guess uh, I was looking at your recent clips, and you, you've been writing about a lot of different things. But... Uh, let's start with, I think, what everybody is thinking about, which is North Korea. Let's. And um, you can give us the definitive word, I'm sure, on whether or not Donald Trump is actually planning on starting a nuclear war on the Korean Peninsula. Not imminently, I'm happy to report. So the way I, because I cover the military, I look at it from a military perspective, and I hear this anxiety, and I certainly understand it because of the level of rhetoric and the fact that with every tweet, there seems to be a test matched with Kim, um, Kim Jong-un's latest speech. And so I understand the anxiety. But because I'm a military correspondent, I tend to look at logistics. You know, so much of the focus is on rhetoric. I, I'm focusing on the logistics because that's a tangible measure of U.S. military intervention. And there hasn't been anything. There's one carrier strike group in the region, the Ronald Reagan. It's in port in Japan for repairs. Um, if we were going to see military action, you would think we would see uh, more um, carriers in the region. Uh, there are roughly 80,000 troops between Japan, Guam, and South Korea. We haven't seen any deployment of additional troops. Any real military action presumably would have an increase in military action. We haven't seen any um, movement of any aircraft, um, fighter jets and the like, into the region. Um, and on top of that, we haven't seen even the families of those 80,000 troops um, evacuated, any sort of warning. And so, um, and, and let me just say, we have, not, we have not seen any similar action in any kind on the North Korean side either. And so for me, in terms of military action or an imminent threat, I don't think we're there. And I think as an observer, those are, those are the things you watch for. We saw the, the bombers come close and, um, and contemplate as closely as possible as they ever have to the North Korean um, shore, although albeit still in international waters. But the real measures of, of military action are not there. And um, and I would point out that you had uh, the chairman's now testifying, Chairman Joint Chief of Staff is testifying on Capitol Hill. He talks about a North Korea that would be armed in 2018 and also noted that he does not see any imminent military action and, and, and pointed some of these things out, um, which made me feel good about my theory and, and also tells me that that's, as a viewer, 
that's the measure I think you use rather than the rhetoric. It, that doesn't mean the rhetoric is, is irrelevant or that it can't have consequences. But if we're if if you're looking at action, measurable action, to me, that's how you watch. For do it. you have to do any of those things to throw 14 nuclear missiles at? North Korea? Well, look, it depends on how you want to re if the if the idea is to hit a a a, a launch pad, okay? Mm -hmm. That would be a minimal action. When you from the military perspective, if you do that, there's a consequence. And the problem is forget about a nuclear reaction. You have a large conventional force on the North Korean side. And so technically to do that first strike, you don't need any of that. But to, to maintain a sustained campaign or to be prepared for any counter response, you would need that force present there by virtue of the size and the willingness, seemingly, of the North Koreans to deploy their conventional forces. Mm -hmm. And what do you suppose the North Koreans have been talking about doing a um, atmospheric test? We don't know whether they're going to do it, but and those haven't been conducted for quite a long time, mm -hmm. right? Um, is there a preemptive action that is even can be contemplated for that? Can you stop that from happening in any way? I'm not quite sure exactly what the threat is here. You can get real, real mad about it mm -hmm. after the fact, but is there some thing that you know that people just normal people just don't understand that you could do to stop them from doing it? I mean, the technical answer is yes, but at what cost? Right? The the consequences of that and it's it's been the thing that has hampered US policy to, for, towards North Korea for the last 50 years there is a consequence to the allies you'll and and that's the other thing you have to consider how would allies react what is the expectation what threat are you putting those those allies in and so my my own personal sense is that in terms of stopping the development of the, of their program i think it's all but impossible at this point. If you're the North Koreans, you're so far along, why would you stop now? Why stop now? And the chairman himself said he expects that we'll be talking about um, a successful completed program as early as the end of 2018. That was his testimony today. And so um, I don't hear U.S. military talking in those terms. You're increasingly hearing about um, deterrence talk. At what point do you have to start um, considering North Korea an armed state that we now and now we and that you have to deal with in terms of deterrence rather than things you can do to mitigate or to slow in any real way the the, the test and by the way even if you freeze the test which is the other possibility you're freezing it very 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 well long and it's and it's testing and it's not going to stop the program right right it freezing that buys you time but if they resume they're resuming from 85 percent of the way there is there any difference in terms of your developing a nuclear weapon and testing it underground and testing it in the atmosphere? Is it just, is it just optics? Well, I know why you don't want to do it in the air because it's going to spread. The radiation is going to spread. But is there a, is there a difference in terms of the, the technicians who are developing the bomb? Do they care where they set it off? I, I my understanding is they do, but I'm kind of limited. I've been on the, the nuclear yeah, part. Yeah, I've yeah. been focusing on the missile part. Okay. And in that regard, it's a huge difference. Right, because the test that we'd been seeing up until the flyovers of Japan mm -hmm. was the missile kind of going straight up and mm -hmm. straight down. Mm -hmm. Because the the biggest challenge is getting that missile back into the atmosphere. And again, a trajectory to return to Earth and release its support. That's right. right. And so the reason you started to see them flying over Japan was they had to start testing trajectory. And that's why we're starting to see those tests. So in term, when I'm looking at the test program, I'm looking at the, the missile um, capability right now because that's that's what delivers the warhead, and we're starting to see tangible advances in that. In that, they part. could hit accurately hit Guam. Well, 
or hit it by mistake if they're lobbing it in that general direction? I don't, I don't want to scare anyone and say for sure one way or the other because I don't know. I guess technically. It's just the PBS. But it's not, we'll, we'll yeah, I know, right. Um, it, but and also it's not clear, like, can that warhead fit on? Is it capable? It's not actually quite clear. I think they could mm -hmm. – I, I think it would be too presumptuous to say. I think they can pose a threat to Guam. But do I want to say a nuclear threat? I'm not – I'm not sure yet. Do you know if these tests that they've been doing have been sort of with the non-functioning equivalent of a warhead? I mean, the weight and stuff? Mm -hmm. So That's they're right. not just firing empty That's capsules. Right. That's right. So they are, in fact, testing or delivery, deliver that ability to deliver that specific <coughs> payload That's to right. a particular place. That's right. Have yeah. you ever heard anybody in the United States express any concern about Guam previously? Sorry, that was kind of a throwaway no. question. <laughs> I keep, people can say, did well, you can attack the United States. 7,000, did you know? 7,000? Troops. In Guam? Yeah. Three military How many people are it's like 100,000, I think. It's actually not that big that's of a, a presence. Pretty, that's a pretty high. You think so? I thought for well, his military presence. person to troop ratio, right? I don't know. Who's got the Wikipedia machine? I don't know. <laughs> um, I never See, I thought it was pretty low. This is because I'm around the Pentagon too Oh, that's much. 1 yeah. to 14, right, roughly. If right? my numbers are right. So what is it? In oh, you Washington. don't want this to sell you. This, yep. is, yeah, this is irrelevant. So... I'll ask one more question, and hopefully we'll get some from. Is it time to? Are we good to move on uh, from the group? Um, if I am the president of the United States, God forbid, <laughs> which I can't be because I don't have a long form birth certificate. I'm sorry. I'm, I am too. It's the only reason that I'm not. Um, I can just decide one afternoon to launch a nuclear strike, and no one can stop me. Okay. So talk about that process. So technically. Technically, yes, but there's a there, the Secretary of Defense has sort of a a say in it in this terms in terms of like veto. It's but I'm getting very technical. Technically, if the order's given, they're they're supposed to follow through. Now, the best example that I've seen in terms of this practically was during the Nixon administration, when um, during the the um, seventy three. Um, the, the Egypt-Israeli war, and, and Nixon was furious at the Egyptians and ordered some sort of strike, and Melvin Laird, excuse me, was 71. There was some incursion going on, and he had ordered a strike in the Middle East, and Melvin Laird told um, the staff to tell him that they had done it and then just ignore it. So when I tell you there was a Secretary of Defense intervention, there's the technical one, and then there's the one that just says, just pretend. But that was with a president who was demonstrably unbalanced. Nixon. Uh, you don't have to but he forgot. To, that was the beauty of it. He, he forgot. forgot. Yeah. So like it literally the one conversation he didn't record. Well, exactly. But he let, he just let the 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 um, the fit kind of bypass. So um, technically, yes. Tech, that's why that football's with him all the time. Technically, yes. He but could just turn around to that guy, say, "Give me that," and technically, technically, technically. I mean, do you know? Um, do you know mm -hmm. Kelly and and the other generals? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and. Can I ask your opinion about them, or can you give me a, a an analytical, you know, what your you know, how you understand them to be in terms? Are they honorable people? Are they? Yeah. Are they? You know, you know the kind of question. About well, are okay. They crazy. <laughs> so, General Kelly, I knew because he was an aide to the Secretary of Defense, mm -hmm. and we knew him at a time right after he lost his son. In Afghanistan, his son died in 2009 or 10. Forgive me. Um, and his son's name was Robert, and he became a different person, understandably, after that. I mean, 
it was Joe Dunford, the current chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who's a friend of his who did the knock at the door at 630 in the morning in full uniform. And that's how he knew he lost his son. And I think for him, these wars took on a new meaning and needed purpose. And he just he, he became more passionate in his work than he was before that, understandably. They're Marines, and so they're very um, disciplined. Um, Mattis is a real wordsmith and is very careful in his word mm-hmm. selection and, and at the same time can say something in a very pithy way, which is very interesting to me. I mean, today... Um, the question was, what do you make of the NFL scandal? And he says, I'm, I'm the Secretary of Defense. I, I defend the nation. That was his response. You know, like it was just short, sweet, and to the point. <laughs> what I find fascinating about the generals more than anything is the fact that, I was saying this earlier, you know, I grew up in Washington, and so for most of my life, government work is not something that's been celebrated. Public service hasn't been celebrated. You know, I grew up watching generate. When I was younger, it was a great thing. You would encourage your kids to become a diplomat or to go mm-hmm. in the State Department. And that's really fallen off in the last few years. The military is the last place where we still celebrate public service. And I don't think it's an accident that you have so much dependency on the military in this day and age because it's a generation of public service that has been frowned upon other than in the military where we continue to celebrate it. And then to me, that's the most interesting uh, dynamic to emerge from from all this. That's mm-hmm. from my vantage point, that's how I'm looking at it because um, they're not politicians and they're not designed to be politicians. They've spent four decades being told not to be involved in politics. They're not ones to craft policy or they're ones to carry out policy. So in that sense, it's it's hard to put them in that position. But at the same time, given how we've treated public service as a nation for the last four decades, I think there's some understanding it's some, there's some logic to the fact that these are the guys who emerge as the most capable leaders of the time. Do you think that they, I know it's impossible to know, but you suppose that they're candid with the president about their views? Uh, it's an interesting question, I'll tell you why, because... Of course, I'm presuming that they disagree with them. Maybe they don't. So. Well, let's even, but the thing is military, by virtue of service, you are taught to be deferential to a civilian. Mm-hmm. At the lowest of lowest ranks, I mean, someone will be deferential to me, and I'm thinking, do you, look at me, what are you talking about? You know, like I don't understand why they're deferential to someone like me, and that is taught. We're talking guys who've been taught this over four decades to be deferential to their civilian leadership. It's just it's it, it runs through their veins, and so this idea that they would stand up and and face the president, whoever the president is, I think at the minimum goes against their their training, their, their lifelong training. That said, they also feel such an obligation to the oath they take, to the Constitution, to the, to the, to the, to the laws that have governed their conduct in, mil- in wartime um, activity and just as, as military officers in terms of conduct, that I just think that's the push-pull that happens. Um, we, we've heard of McMaster, General McMaster, the National Security Advisor, being more forthright, but we've, all, we've also heard that as a consequence of that, or at least in part, he is not as embraced by the administration. So my, my own read in watching Gen, um, Secretary Mattis is that he has found a way to communicate in a way that isn't as maybe as forthright or as aggressive mm-hmm. as General McMaster and is getting his views across, but maybe not as in a direct way. Eddie, yes, go ahead. Nope. I don't see anybody else raising their hands. So. I'm Joseph Tulchin. I was uh, worked in Washington for a long time, but I now retired. I, I run the Latin America program at the Woodrow Wilson Center. 
Uh, two comments and or questions. Either one could be phrased as a question. You may take them as you wish. Um, you talked earlier of troop movements or the lack thereof as a significant element. But uh, if we follow the press, the next step of the escalation is simply to have a North Korean's attempt or to shoot down a US aircraft. Um, what isn't clear from the troop movements of the lack thereof, if we assume a non-rational actor or a rational actor in Pyongyang, shooting down the American um, airplane is actually a very reasonable thing to do because it puts the next move back in the White House, where again you can assume a rational actor or an irrational actor and play it out. So the question is, um, from your knowledge, uh, what's the likelihood uh, of that? Do they have the capacity to shoot down an aircraft? They have in the past, mm -hmm. but never in the context of a tit-for-tat escalation possibility. So that's a question. Yeah. Um, then a quick comment. Um, I worked with General Kelly. He was head of Southcom mm -hmm. for many years, and you will recall that he was named first as uh, the head of Homeland Security. Mm -hmm. He feels very strongly as a military man about the defense of our frontier. He yeah. actually supports the idea of a construction. His principal contribution to strategy in the hemisphere what is now called the T3N strategy, mm -hmm. which is highly controversial throughout Latin America. Uh, but it is, um, how shall I put this? It, it is, he would be sympathetic to uh, an expansion of US intelligence cooperation and so on throughout the world, mm -hmm. as well as the hemisphere. The demand for vetting of uh, uh, foreign travelers, Muslim or non-Muslim, is also congruent with his approach to the national security policy. Mm -hmm. So that's all I have to contribute to my knowledge of this. Um, on your second point, that's the assessment that we've gotten as well, and in, and in the limited contact we've had with him, he's, he's signaled that in both public and private conversations. On the idea of shooting down a plane, I, I'm going to sort of show a bias, because I'm assuming that what North Korea is after is not a direct confrontation with the United States and that in, in, a, in a battle space where they instigate and then leave it to us to sort of set the counter, but that they want to be a nuclear armed state to be treated as a nuclear armed state. That Kim Jong-un's calculation is that he, he will do more to make sure he's a nuclear armed state than the United States will do to stop him from being a nuclear armed state. So I'm not thinking about shooting down of Lanes, I can't, I, I, I'm having a hard time getting to where it's to their advantage. And again, I'm showing my own bias and saying, so I'm not saying that's not possible. They've attempted twice, and of course they did in 1969. In 1969, it was, Melvin Laird concluded, I don't know if it was by accident, who, you know, who knows. Um, and remember, in 1969, when that happened, the Nixon administration concluded it didn't have any good options. And so again, if the idea is to shoot down to provoke, and you have all these checks and balances in the system, I, I, I'm just having a hard time getting to where that guarantees a react. But again, I'm showing my own they bias. The second time in 82. That's right. The response by the United States is, uh, was exactly the same as in 69. Right. And indeed, most people argue there are no good options right. today. Right. So, but um, that seems to me, if I were the head of North Korea, to be the logical next step. And then you see, you see what the crazy guy in the White House. 
See, I'm thinking if I'm the North Korean leader, the next logical step is to get my program developed because that fundamentally changes how the world that's interacts also with the me. Goal, yeah. Right, yeah. Because that changes everything more than the okay. the calculation of what could or could not be the reaction by the United States. Yes. I see that a lot of times when I see the press and media, the consideration for the military in South Korea or the safety of people in South Korea are relatively not much discussed. So I'd like to hear to what extent are the safety of South Korea people in South Korea considered in, in the decisions of the U.S.? And if there were to be a, a conflict, um, what do, what is expected of South Korea to play in the role for the military? I, I can understand what, where you're coming from in terms of not hearing how it would affect South Korea, because it's not at the forefront of sort of the coverage. But I can tell you, every time I have a discussion in the Pentagon, that's the first thing that comes up, the millions of people in Seoul that it w that would be in danger. Then that seems, from what I hear, such a driving factor. And keep in mind, there are also 28,000 U.S. troops there, and it's all sort of um, grouped together as the primary um, driving force for n not doing something more erratic, frankly. Um, and I, but I, again, I understand where you're coming from because it doesn't come up to the fore when we're talking about um, um, South Korea. What's interesting has been the dynamic between South Korea and the U.S. just in the last few months. When President Moon was running, he was running as a pacifist who um, didn't even want THADs in. I mean, remember they were throwing water bottles as the as the trucks were coming through delivering the THAD system, and and talked about talking to, to, to North Korea, and that has, has since had a, a change of tone. And yet you can feel the friction between the United States and South Korea because from their perspective, this rhetoric only endangers um, the peninsula without a clear reason as to why. And so um, what I feel like the relationship between the U.S. and South Korea is, is evolving and is taking on a new form with, with each test. There was a cordial meeting between um, the South Koreans and the United States at the United Nations, mm -hmm. but um, there seems to be a, um, the, the dialogue is shifting more towards traditional talk in a way that it wasn't happening on May 9th when President Moon was, was um, pre yeah, exactly. So it's, it's a hard for me to, think, to answer because I think it's evolving to more a traditional route. It, it's interesting, if you go back and look at the State Department cables from 1969, uh, of, with between President Park and the United States about U.S. reaction, literally the same language that we're that the, that we're hearing now that it didn't, that the U.S. needs to do something that if U.S. doesn't do something we'll see an escalation um, um, in action by by the North Koreans. So it's it's a fascinating dynamic, and I just feel like we're we're moving more. And what did Park want the United States to do? Hmm? What did he want the United States? To do? There's there's no specifics. It just said the U.S. has to react. If not, literally the line in the table says. They said, "Well, look, we could do something, okay, but you're, but, but he has, he's not a threat to the United States. He's a threat to South, South Korea." And the line in the cable says, "President Park was silent for a moment, and then responded, we'll tell President Nixon if he doesn't do anything, it's only going to get worse.'" I guess he wasn't wrong. Yeah. Hi, David. Hi. Hi. Um, could you talk a little bit about Iran and Trump's threats to pull out? I realize that might be more of a State Department issue, but no, no. Uh, what you're hearing as to why um, Massive confusion because. Um, <laughs> Let me back up and say that from a military perspective, these the, the North Korea and Iran are related. That if the United States pulls out of the Iran deal, okay, 
it makes it harder to do any sort of negotiation with the North Koreans because they will be able to legitimately say, why should we enter a deal with you? You just broke out of that own deal, which, by the way, was pretty much working out well. Um, and most recently, there was the hubbub. There was a missile test. Oh, no, there wasn't. So that was a little fun in the building yesterday because they're in this horrible position where, like, they have to contradict the president, and it's awkward. Anyway, so there's that from a military perspective. In terms of the deal itself, you started to see um, European leaders coming forward. We had a bunch of ambassadors speaking yesterday at the Atlantic Council and saying that this is this and the Paris Agreement might be sort of a breaking point in terms of U.S.-European relations because from their perspective, this is not a far-off threat. It's, it's geographically closer. The deal is working from their perspective. Their business interests um, for them uh, even greater than the U.S. And you, you even heard threats yesterday that should the U.S. pull out, the, 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 the European community, the other signatories to that deal, might take a sort of action against the United States in terms of within the deal itself, which I thought was kind of an interesting development. And so to me, it's become a microcosm of the growing tension between Europe and the United States. Um, um, the, you know, when, when the president's telling our biggest ally, I've made a decision, but I'm not going to tell you, I don't, it, it's different than what we've seen in the past. And so um, you're starting to see that tension. I don't know if they're going to pull out of the deal. I will say it's not just a deal with the United States. It's a deal with a lot of countries. And remember that for Iran, in some ways, the deal didn't pan out as much as well as they thought. Remember and then when, when it was announced, there were people celebrating the streets because they thought it would lead to huge economic, a huge economic boom. That hasn't really happened. So um, I, I presume that if the United States pulls out, that the European community will rally. And like the Paris Agreement, it, there's the threat of an isolating the United States as much as anything else in terms of tradition and its, in its traditional relationships with Europe. When the president does something like that, I'm, I made a decision I'm not going to tell you, do the people you talk to sort of nod knowingly think because they know what the decision is, or are they do they get a panic-stricken deer-in-the-headlights look because they've got no idea what he's talking about? I mean, it's the latter because it's their commander-in-chief. And there, and you're not. You'll have you'll have military officers who wholeheartedly agree, and who wholeheartedly disagree. But do and they that, know what it is? The decision? I mean, no. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> they have. They they don't know. Does Trump know? I don't know. <laughs> I have to check Twitter. <laughs> Did you ever heard the word "dotard" before? No. It's a good word. I liked it though. Uh, I liked well. expanding my vocabulary. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Hi. Um, uh, well, Hunim, I'm at the center here, so I, I'll keep taking you a little bit more west. So, okay. uh, I have a question about Egypt. Uh, uh, there has been recently the, the military aid, uh, withholding some, some of the military aid stuff. Is there like any, do you see any change in heart of the, um, uh, that, not the administration, but more of like the Ministry of Defense? And does North Korea has anything to do? Because there are speculations right. about the Egyptian cooperation with the North Koreans. Okay. So, you know, the Egyptians have North Korean workers because Suez, who's this big telecom mega giant, employs them. And and, and the U.S. has been aggressively pushing the, US, the Egyptians to remove those North Korean workers. And CC's, it's a challenge politically because it would be angering a very, very powerful businessman. So that's the dynamic that's going on there. Okay, so in terms of Egypt-U.S. relations, which is my favorite thing genetically, but so you remember during the Cuban Missile Crisis when Khrushchev sends two messages to Kennedy and Kennedy says, let's, re let's reply to the one that we like better. 
that's the same thing going on in Egypt. So the State Department will come at Egypt and say, you better get rid of those workers and you better do this about human rights and you better do this, that and the other. And then Trump says, Sisi's my friend. Right. And so the Egyptian response is, let's just go over to this side with Trump and his love of us as a way that's the message we want to hear. And that's the one we're going to respond to. And so you have a split that's happening in terms of the U.S. interaction with Egypt. On one hand, there's a, there's a push. I think Tillerson, frankly, is exasperated with the, the Egyptian government and is pushing for change. And an, 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 an Egyptian government that thinks that it can buy time by virtue of the fact that it's been so embraced by the president. And so you, you'll see the suspension of aid, but the assumption is that that'll, that that'll um, resume at some point. And there's, it's, it's just a push-pull strategy. It's just very reminiscent of Khrushchev and, and his two letters. And so the question for Egypt is, at what point are they misreading it? And how do you misread it when it's the president of the United States? And, and, and how does this change U.S.-Egypt relations when they were already sort of strained post-2013, and now you have an Egypt that is um, essentially exploiting what it sees as a division be within the, the administration. What about the Pentagon? Are, are there like any change in art, or things are as stable? Honestly, I think it really changed after 2013. I mean, it was the most celebrated relationship, and every time you'd go to Fort Leavenworth, there'd be an Egyptian officer there, and every time I'd go to Egypt, I'd meet an Egyptian officer who trained at Leavenworth. And I feel like after 2013, there was there was a change in terms of mill-to-mill mill relations on that sort of intimate level that was supposed to be the the keystone of the of 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 relations um, between the two countries. Now, militarily, the Pentagon is sort of hanging its hat on the idea that all those weapons that we've provided over the years, you can try to go to the Russian ones, but they're not compatible. That we have the advantage because it's our systems with our parts that you've been working with for 40 years. And I think that's what they're leaning on. But you don't get the sense of kind of the intimacy of that relationship that was once there just a few years ago. Uh, Tyler, and then we'll do him first, yeah. I'm Tyler Bridges. I'm Sean Seafall. Hi. Uh, allow me to ask two questions, please. Uh, the first is, uh, a lot of people think that Trump is crazy and he's acting like a madman. But, but from your perspective, I wonder if there is a method to his madness. We totally, so many people underestimated him politically in 2015 and 2016. Is it possible that people are totally underestimating his diplomatic skills? My second question is, why can't the U.S. simply sit down and talk with the Korean North Korean leader? Okay. On the first question, so the only clue I found is in the art of the deal you ever read it because in terms of foreign policy because I was looking for clues I was curious and I realized that I was saying this earlier with the South Koreans um, early last was it were we still in September earlier this month at the height of all this the, the, the Trump administration announces that we're, we're gonna we're, we're changing the trade agreement with South Koreans because it's a it's a disadvantage to us and to our automakers and everything else okay Logically, when if you're thinking in traditional sort of diplomatic circles, that doesn't make sense. Shouldn't we all have the same voice as we're approaching North Korea? If you read the art of the deal, what you realize is, from his perspective, South Korea is at its weakest. So now let's move in and get the best deal for ourselves. That's the calculation. That's the most logic I've come up with in terms of foreign policy, any sort of thread, because it's this idea. It's it's a, it's it's um, cutting deals rather than these sort of enduring commitments and things like that. It's much more short-term and getting the upper hand. And I've, I've only figured that out checking out the art of the deal because I was trying to figure out is there some – because I, I don't like when we're dismissive of anybody. It doesn't help. And journalistically, I have a responsibility to try to understand. 
Um, talking to North Korea. Um, well, first of all, it would, it would really um, anger allies. Uh, it would be seen as rewarding the tests and the escalation. And it's with a partner who you're not sure who you can engage with. And by the way, you, you're talking about talking with someone who's called for the destruction of the United States and is trained in building a missile system to aim it at the United States. And so it's kind of a... But the Soviet leaders have called for the destruction of the United States repeatedly. Yeah, but then they think kind of there was a point where we started de-escalating. Hmm. We're talking about calling for the destruction and a rapid escalation. Okay. And I think that's... That's the challenge. And at the risk of being obnoxious, who would do the talking? You know, Mattis keeps coming out and saying that Rex Tillerson is in charge of the diplomatic effort to try to resolve this issue. Shouldn't Rex Tillerson be in Beijing every week? He hasn't been there since June. So who would lead that effort? Practically, I'm, I'm just asking. If, if, the, if this is the, the major threat of our time and Tillerson's in charge of it, shouldn't he be working on it full time? It's not, it's not happening. So... That would be. Is it possible it's happening? We don't know it. Uh, we haven't. Wouldn't they be telling us? Wouldn't we get some clue? It just seems to me like this is the threat. He he hasn't been there since June. I don't understand. And if and if it's so important, shouldn't it be happening at the highest levels? I mean, John Kerry when he was trying to do the Middle East peace deal, he was back and forth all the time, all the time. I just, I'm asking, I'm, I'm not making an assessment, but journalistically I'm asking myself, what? Mattis keeps telling us that Tillerson's leading the effort. Then why isn't he leading the effort? Are you assuming it has to happen in interpersonal space as opposed to... I'm assuming that we should be hearing something or seeing something or hearing, the con for, at the minimum, what are the conditions that you would talk to, to, to the North Koreans? At what point, do you, what are the things that you're looking for? What is the end state? We haven't gotten any of that. There's nothing for me to hold on to to try to assess or, or measure any kind of move towards a diplomatic solution. What does a diplomatic solution look like? If they have it, at what point do they have to give it up? Do they have to freeze it? I don't know any of those parameters. Maybe Jared's doing it. Um, he had his hand up, and then we'll go to you. Uh, I'm Nick Vanilow. Hi. Oh, my God, Nick. Jeez. Oh, my God. Hi. It seems to me that those generals have a very difficult assignment. And uh, Kelly, in particular, I believe, said that he had never been so insulted in 30 years of service or whatever. So my question is, are they going to stick around? Is there a chance that they might get fed up and go away? Which I think would be terrible, because these are intelligent, knowledgeable people who have experience. They are in the current parlance. Yeah. The adults in the room. Yeah. And my final question is, Travis Tillerson, what does he do? Is he just a cipher? I don't know. Mercifully, I don't cover the State Department, so I don't have no, to know. No, but, no. but, um, <laughs> so I, I honestly, I can't say, yeah. I mean, well, okay. I don't know if you saw, but Politico had a story about how a lot of people are going to be, who knows, this is just a report, that they're serving for a year and that they plan to get out. And the generals weren't listed among them. Now, the generals that I've been exposed to, quitting is not a good thing. And they have such a sense of duty and maybe a little bit of ego at stake that they, you know, they can't, you, you give them, 
especially Marines, you give a Marine a problem, you know, make a, make a, make a river with this and they'll be like, no problem. Like they can't, it's just in their instinct to take minimal resources and make it work. Just, that's just who they are. So it's hard for me to picture a scenario. We haven't heard rumblings um, of, of a major shakeup militarily. The interesting thing is we've heard from, on some level privately that all, all McMaster and Kelly and Mattis were reticent to take the job or weren't exactly excited about it, but you don't hear them trying to get out. Now, by the way, for McMaster, that would be difficult because he's still in uniform um, and is still an active duty service member. Um, but you don't hear it privately even from Mattis or Kelly. You hear a lot about their frustration, but you don't hear even rumblings of quitting. And I just think, again, it's four decades of being told to make it work um, at play here. And I really think they have a sense of duty to the country. I really believe in their, that they feel in their heart of hearts that this they owe this to the country. Um, in terms of Tillerson, I mean, I can tell you what I can hear, that he and Mattis have a very strong relationship. You hear rumblings about how long his tenure will be at the State Department. There are some people at the State Department who really like him and the kinds of changes he's bringing. There are some people who feel like he is trying to bring too much of a business sense to an institution, probably more than most, is not business-oriented at all and has a different sort of um, goal. Um, I, I think the word you, I would put is tenuous. Like it's his relationship with the State Department feels tenuous. His relationship with the president feels tenuous. There's not an enduring characteristic that I could assign to his tenure, at least as an as someone who covers national security, I'm not getting that vibe. Whereas with Mattis, you kind of, maybe it's self-created, but nonetheless, it's there. There's a personality, there's a vibe, there's a there's a purpose and an and approach to how he does things. You're not getting that as much with, with Tillerson. Well, Tillerson has not wanted to get into the public policy game. Right. He doesn't appear in those circles particularly. The impression that I get from him is that he's a manager. He's going to try to make the State Department more uh, efficient. Right. You can do everything with fewer people, right. perhaps. Uh, but my understanding is that there are 100 jobs in the State Department, not necessarily at the highest level, that are unfilled. And, and right. therefore, there's a lack of knowledge and probably a lack of knowledge of North Korea. Right, but the, I mean, those vacancies are across agencies. Across, I mean, the bevy of people who travel on Mattis is extraordinarily small, extraordinarily small. And the idea, I agree with your assessment on Tillerson, it's just funny to hear because if there was any a position in the cabinet where you were expect a public figure, it is the Secretary of, of, of State. They are the face of, our, of the country to the world community. So it's not that it's right or wrong, it's not for me to make that assessment. It's just an adjustment and something we haven't seen recently. I mean, we all know previous Secretary of State's names in a way that we don't know other, you know, you you know Colin Powell's name, you know Madeleine Albright's name, you know John Kerry's name, you know Hillary Clinton's name. Like, they were the face of the country. And so it's just, it's we've never, we haven't had this where you have a reticent Secretary of State. If I were to ask you, is it good or bad that he's that way? Uh, I could try. I mean, look, it depends on the situation. I think sometimes the U.S. is so public and so aggressive and sort of pushing a, cert a certain agenda that it can be, and I'm looking at this from the Middle East, right? Um, but at the same time, 
those values and ideals are the we're the only country in the world that promotes them and advocates them so passionately and you can at times feel the void of not having that voice particularly now when you're seeing things like what's happening in 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 the middle east and other parts of the world that there's not um a spokesman for 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 democratic ideals out there thanks sure Last time I saw Nick, you were being released from a prison in Moscow. Uh, <laughs> that's an old story. Yes. Hi, my name is Margot Gendon, first year MPP, and I've never been released from prison in Moscow. Count yourself lucky. You're young, though. It could happen. You still have time. The question I have for you uh, is about access. I've read that under this administration, it's been a lot harder for journalists to get contact with policymakers and spokespeople um, that matters shrunk the number of scheduled meetings that we have mm -hmm. um, I'm curious to hear your thoughts and experiences in this and how you can compensate yeah. So the answer is yes. Um, we've only had two briefings with Mattis in the briefing room. And I know that sounds like a trivial thing because, but having someone on camera for everybody to see, answer questions, their mannerisms and everything else, that matters, particularly when we're talking about at a time where we've increased the U.S. troop presence in Syria, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, and a nation that is jittery over the future of, of its policy towards North Korea. It is a notable silence. Now, he comes down to meet with us, I'd say every, on average once a week, sometimes less, um, and does it off camera, and has said that that is the method that he wants to go about it. But it's not, but the, the consequence of it is it leads to a trickle down effect because we're hearing less from combatant commanders. We're hearing less from the generals. We're hearing less from people who used to come forward publicly and on camera and, just, and explain policy because they can justifiably say, if the secretary isn't doing it, then I don't have to do it. So that's sort of the after effect. Um, in terms of trips, um, they've disinvited um, news organizations from trips, and that's obviously angered people because those trips are such a rich opportunity to not only see the secretary up close, but to meet his staff and actually see in a very real-time way um, his efforts around the world again on some of these key areas. Um, it's made the job harder, but I actually think it leads to better journalism because it demands that you become creative, that you develop new sources, that you don't get lazy in terms of leaning on um, easy access. You know, it just you work harder, but I almost, and I think the reward is better because um, it's the Pentagon and there are 20,000 plus people. If you try to hold it back here, it's going to, it's going to, it's going to push out somewhere else and your job is to then find it. You can't keep information there quite. I mean, I'll give you a really quick example. The president said we weren't going to know troop numbers uh, going into Afghanistan. You just, we're not going to know anymore. And that, and that we're going to keep that secret. Okay, well, there was a military base that had a thousand troops going out and put out a story for the families. Here's the number of troops we're sending to Afghanistan. So there's always a way that the, the numbers come out, but you now have to think creatively. Instead of going to CENTCOM and saying how many troops are going, and they say, we can't tell you that, you start thinking creatively. Okay, what, 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 what divisions, what brigades would be most likely to go? Let me call. Let me see. Let me check the local papers and see if there are you know, stories coming out about people getting prepared to go because you can't hide that. So um, it's it's not, again, it's harder, but um, I think it's actually better for us if we rise to the occasion. Thank you.
Is there a stated reason for not telling us how many people are going to? Why does the enemy need to know? Well, the well, official the enemy can go out and count them. Well, so. okay. Um, <laughs> I actually don't understand because what happened was we weren't allowed. There, the, the Pentagon for years has played this game where they don't tell you the actual number. You've never actually known the true number of troops. Right. You've never known because they play this game where there's the force management level. So they they won't include, like, they'd give you a number. but it Yeah, you include, wrote about this yeah. recently. It was yeah. like 3,500 or something that yeah. rotate constantly yeah. and therefore encountered. Temporary duty, um, all sorts of games that they play. So you've never actually known the real number since 2003. So then there was this big pronouncement, we're going to stop doing that. We're going to tell you the real number within a range. And even then we'll... Special ops guys aren't counting mm -hmm. things like that. Okay. And then the president gave the speech at Fort Myer when he said, we're not going to know. Mm -hmm. And then Mattis said, eh, you kind of know. And then all of a sudden we got an announcement that we're not going to know because the president feels that, um, that those specifics are not necessary to be put out publicly, that it informs the public, um, and that he doesn't want to release them. And so that's, that's where we are. You know, Lyndon Johnson thought that too. too. But that's why I say that balloon. You can squeeze it on one side. Yeah. It'll come out somehow. I don't want to dominate if there's more questions. We still have a few minutes because I'm going to, uh, well, if you don't mind. In the back? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, hi, I'm Kevin Johnson. I'm just a community member here on um, the staff or anything like that. And I'm just curious. If I, I came a little bit late, so please come in. Um, that's something I'm sorry to cover. But I was curious about uh, you know, the Palestinian conflict. And it seems like um, Mattis uh, you know, had expressed concern about Israel's uh, situation, specifically with settlements a few years ago, that seems uh, the opposite way the Trump administration is behaving. I'm just curious about how you see that being resolved or not. Well, it's, I, I don't even think of resolution because we have, it's hard to see how, um, we've never had an approach this way. I mean, I don't, I'm not picking on Jerry Kushner or anything, but we're, he doesn't have experience in the Middle East. And we have had people with decades of experience who haven't been able to break the stalemate, which comes at a time when both sides are increasingly entrenched in their positions. This is not, the middle ground is, is bigger and bigger because people are further and further away from one another. So I honestly, when I'm thinking about the Palestinian issue now, I don't think about solutions. I think about what happens when you have people in, in entrenched positions because the U.S. is not there to try to push them closer to the middle. That's that's how I think about about the region right now. So you think the U.S. will just basically step back and not get involved? I, I think it's sort of started to happen in the sense that um, I think Christians made a handful of trips there, but we haven't had any deliverables come out of it. We haven't had an agreement or a promise or any sort of tangible result of, of those meetings. So I don't even, it's not necessarily intentional, and I'm not suggesting that they've washed their hands of it. That's not my intention at all. I'm simply saying that the, the end result is we don't have a, we haven't had a, a deliverable. And again, it comes at a time when people are moving this way. You know. Mm -hmm. what, what steps, if any, uh, has General Mattis taken to reassure NATO and NATO countries that the United States is still backing them, supporting them, especially in light of you know recent activity in Ukraine and other right. places, and Russian aggression is still right. quite visible? So he went out early on in his tenure, and he gave a speech to NATO, and he said all the right things. Mike Pence went out uh, over the summer, again went out and said all the right things. We haven't seen, we've seen some troop deployments, but pretty minimal. Um, and so they'll be reassured, and then the president will say something, and that'll just make them insecure all over again. And so 
I think privately Mattis is saying, don't worry, things are going to sort of remain the status quo. And is trying to reassure, don't 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 measure us by tweets in terms of U.S. policy. Measure us by action. And the fact that I'm here and making an effort to reassure you um, is is the U.S. policy. So. And I guess my follow-up question is another part of the region. I'm, I'm trying to get like my my fellow brother here until the other African in the house. Um, <laughs> I have to mess with him. Uh, you should. It's okay. Uh, it's okay. Um, He's used to it. He's Egyptian. He's used to it. But you know, Iraq is not on the front page as as, as much as it was. I mean, this summer we had some news about Iraq and Mosul and the campaign against ISIS. Uh, why is that? Is is there anything that we should be worried about in Iraq and Afghanistan and what our what yeah. I'm so glad you raised it because we should talk about those wars. So right now, I think because Mosul was over and people had sort of held up Mosul and Raqqa as the def once they fall, Rock, uh, ISIS falls, and to some degree that's true. To some degree, there's still battling going on in Hawija. The, the the thing that I think we worry about is we've been down this road before. Where we have declared a terrorist group in the previous case, Al Qaeda, defeated only to know that they had gone underground. And, re and reconstituted themselves as ISIS. That's precisely what happened. And so I think the thing to watch for is does that happen again? Because it's hard to believe, particularly recently, you know, and in, in, in some of these recent cities, these battles are going, I mean, in a matter of days, these cities are falling. Mm -hmm. Did ISIS really just disappear? I, I just, I'm asking the question. Um, on Syria, what I think is interesting is for years and years, the U.S. has said that the war against ISIS is not in any way going to touch Assad's campaign. We're not going to come anywhere near it. And in Deir Zor, we are coming violently into it because you have Assad forces there, you have ISIS forces there, and now the U.S. finds itself confronting um, a battlefield where its involvement arguably helps the Assad regime because the defeat of ISIS in Deir Zor is territory that presumably would go back into the to the Assad regime. And so by default or by 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 geographic um, coincidence or outcome, you have a U.S. policy that is going to arguably work to the Assad regime's favor. And I think that's something we should be following that hasn't been followed enough because I think this is going to keep happening, that as those territories start to merge together, how does the U.S. deal with it? If the Assad regime must go, as has been the U.S. position, what do you do with that? If it's no longer the U.S. position, what does Syria look like? And does that simply, again, plant the seed for jihadi groups to um, to lay low, uh, have a place to plot attacks? Because it's hard to believe that he would have total control again of these territories that he lost. Um in 2011. So those are the two things that I'm looking at vis-a-vis um, -vis, um, the war in Iraq and Syria. Also, the, the political situation in Iraq, I would point out, um, is really important because you've now had this referendum vote. What is Iraq? The, when, when the Sunnis feel disenfranchised and the Kurds are looking at independence and you have an increased Shia influence and a, and, a, and a prime minister who arguably doesn't control parts of Baghdad, let alone these extenuating parts of the country. Are they going to carry out the ban on transgender troops? We're about out of time. Uh, I mean, they're studying it now, right? Which is a good thing at the Pentagon. I'll just say this. Since we've had an all-volunteer force, we have never had people who raised their hands, say, I want to serve, and been told, y you can serve. Oh, actually, no, you can't. We now have 
three groups of it. We have DACA recipients, we have transgender troops, and we have MAVNI, which are um, people who have a legal status who come in separate from DACA. It's a, yeah. a, a, okay. And it, that alone changes the dynamic of the military. And it, you, it's just never happened before. Well, it happened with, with uh, gay and lesbian. But you could serve. You just couldn't say anything. Oh, I see what you're saying. These, are, these guys are <laughs> these saying. These people are going to I, even right, if they're. Yeah. I, they've started to serve. They've yeah. started to serve in the like, gotcha. actually, no. Yeah. And I worry about that dynamic because it because what does that do for unit cohesion? What does it do when we are asking people to make uh, who are willing to make that oath, which is such a beautiful thing? Actually, we don't want you. It's just never happened before. Um, Dunford today testified that he thinks that transgender service members should be allowed to serve and that he advised the president that. This is my own speculation. My gut tells me that that will happen because it's it's a dangerous precedent. When we tell people, um, thank you for your service, actually, we don't want you anymore, you know? So they just string it out? Was there a deadline? Were they supposed to report back in? February. There's always uh, a deadline. February. What year, of course? <coughs> what century? I mean, there's always a, I, I honestly think, I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you do it. There's, And, and by the way, I want to be clear that, that General Milley, um, General Neller in the Marines, they will be very clear about how how the issue makes them uncomfortable, and yet they always come down to that. That oath means everything. You know what I mean? That's it. How do you look? A, how do you look a service member in the eye who's wearing your uniform and say you can't? Well, what vote? about new people who want to join? Again, but, but how, do do, right. yeah, how do you how start? Do, how do you start? How do you stop? How do you do one and not the other? Right. right. I mean, well, and legally, how do you do it? I have no idea. How do you do it legally? So my gut tells me that, and it's just pure speculation. I have no basis um, for it. Is that they'll be allowed to serve, and that, and that, and that. I think the question we ask is, what is the consequence in creating this class? I think it'll be harder for DACA recipients to, to overcome that hurdle. But I think for transgender service members, the requirement will be the same. If you can meet the standard, you can serve. That has always been our motto in an all-volunteer force. And I think um, for the service, and the, it, it will be a requirement that that continues, even if you don't agree with the idea of having transgender That's service members. Since I'm encouraged to express my opinions, I think that's good news. Yeah. <laughs> Finally, I have good news. Uh, yes, I think we're out of t one more question. Especially if it's brief. No? Yes, Jessica. Hi. I'm Um, Just because the transgender issue was, like, that was you know, a Trump tweet. Like, that's how we all found out. And we always joke about Trump on Twitter, and like that is like our main press releases. But I'm curious, like, what is your take on, like, how seriously you as a journalist in this beat take Trump, like our president on Twitter, and just how you've been navigating that as a journalist? I mean, the reality is, I have to check every morning, right? I have to check every morning. It's like a routine. You get up. You drink something, you get ready to go to the gym, you check the tweets, you pray that nothing happens when you're on the treadmill, and then you go home and get ready for work. So it's not even, you have to take them seriously because of the President of the United States. From a military perspective, I actually think it creates an opening because you cannot give orders by way of Twitter. It can't happen. And the, what you saw with the, with the issue with transgenders is it opened the opportunity for the military to buy time to come up with a solution. And so the it's an interesting dynamic we have that, that you're, I mean, now, 
if we tweeted, uh, I mean, even a, can you tweet a, a military operation? I don't know. But it's just an interesting dynamic that you're seeing about how government agencies, or at least the Defense Department, is adjusting. Because what does the military hate uh, more than anything? Unpredictability, right? They just, they can't. Okay, so they, they, they buy time with those tweets. I mean, I was... It was one morning. All of a sudden, you're you're looking on Twitter. Wait a minute, we're bait. And by the way, the, the it was July 26th, and the tweet started like I I've made a decision on, and then it was dot dot dot. I we, we there were people at the Pentagon thought we were going to war with North Korea. We were getting ready to do something because it was like seven minutes of suspense until it said transgender service members. It was amazing. We're all looking like oh my god. Like do I run home? Do I get a vet? Do I get my Kevlar? What do I do? Um, that's what I've seen. I'm actually fascinated by how agencies are reacting to it and how, especially the Defense Department, where they take the, it's their commander in chief. How do you navigate this world? And I'm, 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 I, I don't focus on like they're there and I have to deal with them. But journalistically, I think my, I'm, I'm, I'm more interested in how this changes government and how it's adjusting to social media. To receive that. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by ExtremeMusic.com.